The sermon reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. When's the world going to end? Do you know? Anybody know? I know that, you know, early on people thought at the millennium, like the first millennium came to an end, people were like, it's going to end. I don't know why a thousand years, but that was just a lot of fear. I think Y2K provided us the second millennial f scare, right? You should start buying guns and extra toilet paper because the end is near. I'm pretty sure those were going to be, toilet paper was going to be the currency of the future. Has anyone regretted even hearing that out loud? 
And of course, there was the Mayan calendar, right? In 2012, coming to an end, that's going to be the end of the world. And of course, 2012 came and went. And then, of course, most famously, of course, is, is all the people that said, when the, when the Cubs win the World Series, that's when we know the world is coming to an end. It must be. But all those things have come, and they've gone, and the world has not ended. And I think maybe some of us have took our cues off of one of the very popular book series in the 1990s called Left Behind. Now, if by some grace of God you have never heard of Left Behind, if you were in no way, shape, or form aware of what we're talking about, thank the Lord. Just take a moment to privately 16 books. All right, come on, confession time. How many of you read at least three? Well, this section, y'all just didn't read any of that, so that's good, that's good, you're, you're free. Yeah, the, um, <clears throat> it's possible that when you make four movies, three initially with Kirk Cameron, who, I got no words after that, um, and, then, and then you do a remake with Nicolas Cage, which basically is just a guarantee that your movie is going to be terrible, right? I mean, come on. I mean, he's running at some point because that's what Nicolas Cage does, but that's a guarantee that it's going to fail. There was a video game of Left Behind, I found out. Yeah, so the question is age old. When is the world going to end? And more significantly, maybe what are, what are the signs? How are we going to know that the world is coming to an end? And that's precisely what the disciples ask Jesus in verse 4 of this chapter in the book of Mark. They say, tell us when these things, when, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus started answering this then well somewhat what he does is he actually begins by answering the second half of the question they ask him when and what are the signs like and he says well i'm going to start talking about some of the signs but as we're going to discover that's not exactly where jesus is going not to answer specifically what they're wanting he's not going where they would imagine because jesus does not do what we would imagine he is not the king as we would think he is he is the king so this morning, we're going to look at this passage in two particular categories. One is the progressive picture of doom. You're welcome. And secondly is the perspectives and promises of hope, okay? So the, so the progressive pictures of doom followed by the, progressi- the, uh, the perspectives and promises of hope. So let's look at the, uh, the progressive pictures of doom first. Starts in verse 2. Jesus says, there will not be left one stone on another. They've they've just come out of the temple. This is the last week of Jesus' life. And they've been in the temple. There's been all these fights in the temple. And now he's in the temple leaving what seems like maybe for the last time. And one of his disciples, I love that Mark doesn't even identify him, goes, teacher, check out the stones. Like the, the stones in the temple were fantastic. Some of them were like 20 feet by 8 feet by 10 feet. They're huge, and they're kind of white, so they kind of gleam. The, the temple was something incredible and beautiful. The temple of, of Herod that was the rebuilding of the temple was far more beautiful, candidly, than the one that Solomon built back in the flourishing time of, of Israel. And so when these, this disciple says, like, check out how amazing these stones are, how huge they are, how, how ornate they are, Jesus says, Not, yes, but, yeah, let me just tell you. Not one of these stones, these huge stones, will be on top of the other soon. And sure enough, in A.D. 70, 
after a rebellion by the Jews for that last, what you call the Jewish war, that lasted from about AD 67 to AD 70, Titus, at the front of a Roman army, comes and besieges, the, besieges Jerusalem and destroys the whole city. Now, the temple is about a sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. That's how big the temple area is. And he levels it. He burns it with fire. And to this day, there has never been a temple in Jerusalem again. AD 70, the words of Jesus came true. But it goes beyond that. Jesus says in verse 5 and 6 that there's going to be pretenders. There's going to be deceivers that are going to come. And, and, and they're going to say, hey, uh, I'm Jesus. And people are going to say, hey, uh, he's over there. Jesus is over there. And he said, don't, don't believe it. Though people will. Some people are going to abandon the faith. And they're going to they're follow this would-be savior, this false savior. Jesus says, you're going to lose brothers and sisters in the faith to some of those people. And there were, there were many false prophets who emerged and people pulled away and left the faith to follow them, to follow a different way of, of being saved, to false teachers and deceptive doctrines. Verse 7 and 8, Jesus says, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. And there's going to be famines. There's going to be, be all this natural upheaval. And there's all this national upheaval. Things are going to get bad. And of course, sure enough, many wars have been, including the Jewish war that destroyed the temple. Destroyed all the things that people had known for centuries. But Jesus says this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning because it's going to get worse. He says, just be clear, this is all going to happen, but this isn't the end. It's just the start. It's going to happen around you and is all these wars and, and all these false prophets. But what's going to happen to you is going to be more severe. You see, you're going to be, verse 9, you're going to be delivered over. You have people that are going to take you and they're going to throw you in front of kings and in front of rulers. They're going to put you in front of the kind of people who can do whatever they want to with you. The kind of people who have that level of power. And they're going to be thrown in front of them. They're going to be delivered over, it says. In verse 12, it's not just bad that you're going to be delivered over to those rulers, but you're going to be betrayed by the very people that you should have the most confidence in the fact that they love you and are for you, that brother's going to turn against brother, that father's going to turn his child in, that children are going to turn up against their parents. When an entire culture and society is based on the fabric of family, where your allegiance is not individual, but is actually to your clan, to your, to your people, to your family, this is unthinkable. This is how bad it's going to get, Jesus says. People will betray you for my name. Last people you would think of will turn on you. And then just as a summary, he says, all people are going to hate you. And, and that means conservatives and liberals are going to hate you. That means the religious are going to hate you. The irreligious are going to hate you. You're going to be hated by everyone. There will be nowhere where there's full respite. You're going to be an offense, and the gospel in me, of me, in you, is going to be an offense to everyone. You're going to be rejected by the world. But there's more. Those signs are very particular, and, and most commentators, though this passage is probably the most 
commented on and the most confusing to most commentators, as most commentators will say, which is an irony. This section seems to end some of the dynamics that are going to unfold most clearly around the fall of Jerusalem, around the AD 70. And everyone can go, yeah, these things happened in many different ways. But there's more. The signs are going to start getting far and far more opaque from here on, more unclear, fuzzier. Verse 14 has this famous line, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. It's great to read commentators who go, we're not sure what Mark means by let the reader understand, which I find to be one of those great moments in the scriptures where you go like, so the, the readers of Mark are supposed to understand something that the readers of Mark, us, are having a hard time understanding. Basically, he's saying that there's going to be this this abomination of desolation, and this is a term, it's kind of a cryptic term that's, that's used by Daniel three different times in the book of Daniel, which the book of Daniel, for those who aren't familiar with, is a prophetic book. It's, it's pointing and pushing into the future, into the, the end of the ages, the end of time that God revealed to Daniel. And so there's this picture of this abomination of desolation that's standing where it ought not to be. And most people said, well, maybe it's, it could be a couple different things. Maybe it's, um, it could be like Caligula who threatened to bring an image of Caligula into the temple, but he never really did. So it's probably not that. Maybe it's Titus, because, you know, when Titus comes in and he destroys the temple, well, that's kind of a desecration, and he shouldn't have been standing there in the middle of the rubble of the temple. So, so maybe that's the picture, and so it's a forward-looking thing, and, and maybe that's what it is, but, but the best understandings don't seem to land clearly there. Instead, it seems like it's more likely that Jesus is describing the rise of, of a terrible antagonist, what has been called in the scriptures the Antichrist, who at some time in the future, some unknown time in the future, again, a little bit more opaque, a little more unclear, is going to unleash this severe tribulation on the earth in a way that's never been known before. And he's going to unleash it in particular on the people of God. And this kind of tribute, this tribulation is going to usher in the return of Christ. That's about as clear as it gets in these verses. But 2 Thessalonians kind of echoes this in verse in uh, chapter 2, verse, verse 3 and 4, it says, let, let no one deceive you in any way. This is Paul talking to a church that's trying to understand how things are going to kind of end. Where are they in the scope of history? So let, don't let anybody deceive you, Paul says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, which many understand to be that, that antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. As in, like, he is the one to be worshipped above all things, including all other kinds of gods to be worshipped. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So that's Paul talks through this, this, who is this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, and we don't know. Now, there's been speculation all along history, right? M more recently, people have, like, thought, okay, well, it's Hitler, right? In the midst of the rise of the, of the Nazi regime, people are like, surely this is Hitler. I mean, look, he's got, it's got to be Hitler. And then later on, people are like, well, maybe it's Stalin. I mean, he's kind of raising up a regime. Maybe he's going to do something. Maybe it fits that particular genre. Maybe it's Bill Gates. That was running around somewhere in the 90s, I think. So maybe, maybe you know, I, I remember reading some stuff. Oh, President Obama is the Antichrist. Anybody else read that? Like that? He's the anti. So there's always been speculation, but, but nobody knows. I mean, maybe you know, but, I, but nobody seems to know. There's an opaqueness other than the fact that the arrival of this particular 
man. It's a, it's, it's, what I say, it's a man, it's a he, not an it's, not even like a statue or something. It's a person is going to usher in a world mess. Destruction, terrible things. Verse 19 says, in those days, in those days there will be such tribulation it has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and will never be. This is not just a bad day for the stock market. This is something or a set of some things that are not clear about that are going to be so undoing that there's nothing in the past that it can be compared to. And let's be honest, there's been some terrible things in the past. Can we all agree? It's somehow going to be worse. The tribulation. One uh, commentator says, it's a situation that depicts, sorry, a situation is depicted that has no parallel in human history. Apart from God's greatish, gracious intervention and assistance, it will be humanly unsurvivable. And yet it will be survived. And so this great tribulation happens, and then finally, as if things aren't bad enough, in the midst of this tribulation, we have the rising of false, is it false prophets, but false Christs. People that now when everything is as bad as it could possibly be, say, you can trust in me. I'll be your rescue in some way, shape, or form. I'll be your salvation. Things are as bad as they can possibly be. This is the way to live. This is the way to be fulfilled. It will be falsehood on top of falsehood. This is the way of rescue. Doom, huh? It gets worse. Verse 24 and 25. Something else seems to be happening on top of it all. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. Something so cataclysmic that, and again, this is probably even more opaque than what we've looked at so far, that no one understands, are, are stars actually going to fall out of the sky? Is this the, is this the undoing of all cosmetology? Is, is this the true, un, the breaking down of all things that hold the universe together? Maybe. It's a cosmic undoing. The universe is being undone. That's Jesus' answer. What are the signs? It's going to be bad. And then it's going to be bad for you specifically. And then it's, it's going to be really unsettling and undoing. And then it's going to be destructive. And then it's going to be horrific. And then it's going to be dis destruction of all things. And, and let's, let's pray and close. You guys ready? And if that's all that Jesus said, like we should despair. But, but that's not all he says. That's not all he says to them. It's not all he says to us. He actually gives a very clear sense of what it looks like to have a different set of perspectives in the midst of what is to come. Even the, the what is to come, that's not clear. Because if, if through verse 13 ended at, uh, if verse 13 ends with the destruction of Jerusalem, and we can see it, right? I mean, can we all 
read those sections and go, I think I've seen all of those things in the book of Acts pretty much, right? So wars and rumors of wars, people being dragged in front of tribunals and kings, people testifying, right? This all happened. Most of this happens in the book of Acts, which ends right before the destruction of Jerusalem. So it seems like, yeah, all these things seem to happen, and that kind of makes sense. But this other stuff seems to be present tense or future tense. Some of it is clearly future tense for you and me. So let me say this. I'm going to say it a couple different times, but Jesus' purpose in this passage is not to answer the disciples' question. It's not to give you what the signs are, and it's not to give you the when. Steve will deal with the when next week. It's not to give you those things. It's not what it's for. And we've wasted an unreal amount of time trying to figure that out. When That's not Jesus' purpose in giving us these things, or he would have given them more clearly to us. Instead, his purpose is to say, what kind of people do you need to become in order to be able to weather this kind of thing? So that's what he's trying to declare to his disciples. It's what he's trying to declare to you and me today. How do you become the kind of people who will weather, endure, persevere? And this is the perspectives and the promises that he gives to his people. Here's how Jesus redefines the good life, not by saying these things aren't going to happen, but by saying, I have good news for you in the midst of them happening. One of the best ways of understanding this passage is by looking at the imperatives, right, the commands. Anytime you're reading a passage when there's several direct imperatives or, or commands by it, whether it's the Apostle Paul or by Jesus himself, it make, makes you go, okay, this is something that's supposed to happen, something that's supposed to be manifested from me and with me and in me. And, and there are many imperatives in here, including the one that begins in verse 5 and 6 when he's talking about, see that no one leads you astray, he says. Yeah, there's going to be false teachers, but, but, but your, your purpose is to see that you're not led astray, that you, to have a, a set of eyes that are looking clearly enough at what's true to be able to discern what is, what is false. So when someone says, here I am, you don't go like, is it? But you go like, no, no. In light of what Jesus is going to say later, we won't be guessing if he's over there. The whole sky will tell us the truth. So I don't need to be swept around and moved around by that, but that doesn't mean that today we're not moved around by false teachers and false doctrine. I mean, whether it's, whether it's prosperity gospel, which is, which is insipid, and of course there's like the super clear prosperity gospel, right, which is like, like if you believe in God, your life's going to be better, everything's going to be perfect, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise, everything's going to be awesome. And if it's not good, it's because you don't trust him enough or you haven't sent us enough money. So if you'll send us more money and then maybe trust him a little more, your life will be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's, that's the prosperity gospel, and it's destroying people. It's taking advantage of people, and it is lying to people. It is false teaching. It is false doctrine, and it's destructive. It's not just kind of like, oh, it's cute. No, it's destructive. It perverts the reality of the sacrifice and the life. It perverts this entire passage. In this world, in this life, you will have suffering, Jesus says. It, does, it just undoes everything about that. So we have that in our midst, and it's, and it's rampant in Africa in particular, in India. I was talking to Sanjit. It's over in India. It's, it's very palpable, right? I can control the goodness of God by by how I do stuff, and he now owes me a little quid pro quo relationship. So is that false teaching? But I think probably the most pervasive in our, in our immediate cultural context in, in, in the U.S. today is, is the idea of this, um, that God exists to help me become the real person that I was supposed to be. That, that, I'm, that God exists to help actualize, or for me to self-actualize in my life, that it's a 
that it's really a gospel of love, that he loves me so that I can love myself the most and the, and the best and, and can be true to me. And don't get me wrong, God has very good purposes for you, and he wants you to know who you are very, very clearly, but he doesn't exist for that. So everything in us tends to then go inward, where individualism becomes the most powerful thing. And to be really alive, what God wants for me is for me to be free and unbounded and sexually satisfied. Of course, that's the most, one of the most important things. But ultimately, he just wants me to be happy. And so if I'm happy, then surely God is doing his job and surely I'm believing rightly. And loved ones, like that's so in the air that oftentimes we don't recognize the fact that, um, that we exist for him, not the other way around. I'm sorry. That he, yeah, that, that we exist for him and not the other way around, that, that he doesn't exist for us, that, he has, that we have been made for him and that we're most alive when we're giving our lives to him, which is precisely why this passage calls us to very, that very kind of, of living. So there's false teaching going on and false prophets, present tense, no doubt about it. There was then and there is now. But one of the fascinating things is Jesus says in the midst of the, the wars and rumors of wars, like, we're not sure our son might be going back over to the Middle East again. We're like, man, there's wars and rumors of wars. And you know what, Je- what Jesus says? Verse 7, he says, have this perspective. Do not be alarmed. It's going to be okay. One of the reasons it's really powerful that he says this is happening is he's saying, I see it, I know it's coming, and I'm in the midst of it. I will be with you in earthquakes and famines. And that... This is just the beginning of birth pains. It says that there's, this is actually going to be producing something far greater and grander than you even realize. It's just the beginning. Something great is at stake. Something great and better is coming. Which is why then Paul, Peter's, then uh, Jesus says in verse 9, then therefore be on your guard. Be on your guard because, because you're going to be dragged to places you do not want to go. In front of rulers and your very life will be at stake. You're going to be imprisoned be threatened. You're going to lose your freedom. And Jesus' command to them is, be on your guard and don't worry about what you're going to say. I find that fascinating. I find it beautiful, actually, because what, it, what, it <laughs> what it's saying is Jesus is not saying, hey, listen, when you're in prison or when you've been brought in front of people, I want you to know, like, no one can possibly hurt you. I want you to know that all the things that are taken from your home because you've been set in prison, like, they'll be given back to you. That's not what he says. He says, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of you being dragged in front of other people, in the midst of your family turning on you, I have you on mission. I, I actually have for things for you to say. I have things for you to do. In the midst of the chaos, you're being sent out. Like, this is, this is my purpose. Not, hey, when everything finally settles down, then I, no, my purpose in this is that, it would all, that, the, that the gospel would go to all the nations. You remember, I don't know if you remember, when we did the book of Acts, we were talking through that, that, that when, when persecution hits Jerusalem and everybody scatters, it was God's way of going like, yeah, I need this to go beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And persecution comes in and everyone runs out and you know what happens with it? The gospel goes out. And every nation starts to hear, Ethiopians start to hear, and Samaritans start to hear, and Gentiles begin to hear. And thank God, because we're sitting here, a bunch of Gentiles who needed the gospel. 
So in the midst of chaos, in the midst of all this uncertainty, in the midst of persecution, what Jesus is saying is, don't worry. I'll tell you what to say. And, and, and it's not just, okay, cool, so I know what to say. No, 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 it's more than that. It means that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is going to be close enough to your ear and present enough in your soul that you're going to hear from him and know what to say and do. That you won't be panicking in those moments. Have you guys ever been before a king? I haven't, not yet. A queen? President? Maybe. But most people get a little tense, a little nervous, let alone when your life is at stake. And he says, you won't have to be worrying about what your life is at stake because, because I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to be that near to you. My presence will be that comforting to you. And that's better than if you weren't in front of those kings and rulers. It's better. Loved ones, it's better. Jesus makes crazy claims about your life. He redefines the good life in insane ways in this passage. It's better that you be there than not. Why so many of them in the book of Acts say they counted a privilege to suffer for his name. It's better. Mission is in the midst of betrayal and chaos. But Jesus has promises for those that are going to be losing family and, and, and brothers and sisters and, and parents. And I, I just want to say this because this is, this is real. And, and for some of you, actually having chosen to, to walk with Jesus means that you have a different kind of or maybe even broken relationship with family members. I'm talking to someone who said, like, my, my dad will never be proud of me because I'm following a, a career that engages in faith. He'll never, he'll ne I'll never hear well done from him because he doesn't respect it. He doesn't think much of it. Thinks I'm a fool. But this is what Jesus says in Mark 10. This is a few months ago. Mark 10, 29, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold ample blessing now in this time Houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecution, which is, again, an amazing placement of that. And in the age to come, eternal life. Scripture said, there's a friend that sticks closer to a, than a brother. Psalm 27 says, though my father and my mother forsake me. This is an amazing verse. Yet the Lord will take me in. I don't want my mother and father to forsake me, please. But you know what? The promise is that the Lord will take me in. That if all things are taken away, they, your home and your land and your, and your family, and if they turn on you, oh, rejection, betrayal, the worst kind, the Lord will take you in. He'll give you brothers and sisters. He'll give you a home. He'll give you a future and a promise. He says, and in the age to come, eternal life. We'll get back to that at the end. Jesus says, you may be rejected by all, hated by all, but not by me. And my voice and my call and my declaration over you is the truest, deepest, and longest lasting. Now for some of us, well, actually, there's some people out in the world currently for, those, for, for whom all these realities are, are present tense, right? 
I mean, if you're in India or, or maybe in, in Iran or in Somalia or in Afghanistan right now, like you are being betrayed. You, you are potentially standing in front of tribunals and you are maybe losing your life. That's, that's a real thing. Just go to Voice of the Martyrs. And it, they'll, they'll tell you story upon story upon story about people who say, because I'm a Christian, my family kicked me out. Can't get a job. But for most of us, things are pretty good overall. It doesn't mean that there's not hardship and there's not uncertainty, but things seem pretty good. No one's, no one's, we're not like watching the doors and see like if we can run out in case someone breaks in and hauls us all off to prison. It's been true in various places, but it's not true today. And I just want to remind you that when the disciples are sitting with Jesus, looking at the temple, quietly on the Mount of Olives, it doesn't look like that for them either. Things are pretty good. I mean, they just came in, triumphal entry. People are, like, throwing their garments on the floor. and a G- They're with the Messiah. Like, they're chilling with the Messiah. Like, they got the guy who's supposed to make all things great and amazing. They don't actually understand what's about to happen. Certainly don't understand what's about to happen to them. It's awesome because they don't realize what's about to happen in them, too, but that's a separate thing. But, but they're, they're, like, they're sitting like us, you know? Everything's okay. There's just enough money in the treasure. We're going to be able to have a, a Passover dinner in just a, a couple days, and... Jesus says, these things are going to happen. And they may be a future potential for us, or maybe it's something that's just happening over there. But, but the reality of what Jesus is describing here is, is real. And I think one of the great questions for us to ask ourselves is, what has it cost us to follow Jesus? What, what does it cost you to follow Jesus? What does it cost me to follow Jesus? And before you jump to like, well, really, not a whole lot. You may want to do some inventory on that to realize there are price tags. And for some, more severe than others. And by the grace of God, there's not some of the more severe price tags that we describe here. But like if, if you're a biology major or professor, and like you're not going to get a good job if, if you're like, yeah, I, I believe in intelligent design. Like you're not getting a job at a university. It's not happening. I was just talking to someone else who works at a university. And they were saying like, there's just certain things you can't bring up or talk about or you're, you're, you're at risk. It's not a safe setting. Your career is at stake. I was talking to someone who talked about the, uh, that, that not wearing a pride pin because their company was working with trying to bring about justice in the pride movement and to not wearing a pride pin like put their job at risk. But even just the cost of, like, if you're single, and you're going to choose celibacy until marriage to not pursue the sexual fulfillment and satisfying that's the most alive, giving, life-giving thing that our society promises, and it's not. And because Jesus says so, because Jesus invites you in a different way of life, it costs you to follow Jesus. You don't just get to do whatever you want. You don't get to do whatever you want with your money. You don't get to do everything you want with your home, with your body. You don't get to do that. He owns it, and so there's a cost to following Jesus. It's helpful to be aware of that because more is likely to come. And ironically, as we, <laughs> as we step into this time and this season of risk, some of what we're doing is we're going like, yeah, let's actually bring some things up on the radar that will invite us to step straight out into the uncertainty of what it might mean for God to meet us when we're not sure how things will go. Because he, he promises he will. Not that it will always go well, but he promises that he'll be in it to change us. I think one of the things that's impossible to miss in, this, in these verses, in this passage, 
is, is the fact that there's just no control. There's the, the lack of control. All these things are happening too, right? I mean, is there any sense of like, and here's how you're going to handle this? No, it's like you're just being swept. Everything is happening too. And in an age and a time of where I live and we live with the illusion of control over our own body, over our own health, over, over who's the president or who's, who's, in, who's in government, illusion over how, how the stock market is going to do and how your portfolio is going to play itself out. It's, it's illusion. We have this illusion of control. And this kind of passage takes it and says, yeah, you have no control. Things could change like that in your life, for your body, for your family. Control is an illusion. See, one of the things that we have to come to grips with in a culture of, of comfort and of, of security is that Jesus' first concern is not yours and my safety and security. And hear me, doesn't mean that safety and security don't matter and they're not good desires to have. They are good desires to have. They're good things to pursue. But that's not Jesus' primary concern. That's not his primary on-the-radar thing for you and for me. almost peculiarly absent. No, what's on his radar is us being people who, in, who endure. We're going to be steadfast. We're going to persevere knowing that rescue is guaranteed. Now hear me. If rescue is not guaranteed, though it may not be rescue the way we think it is, but though if rescue is not guaranteed, then this is a fool's errand, Right? Y'all should go do something else. We should all do something else. Throw this into a roller rink or something. No, but rescue has been guaranteed, and, and he's the guarantor. And so he invites us in. He says, yeah, you have no control. And everything here is, is telling me I, I need to take care of myself. And Jesus promises us not rescue from adversity, suffering, but to rescue us through it. It's always been his promise. Which means that everything can be taken from us. Our lives, our safety, our security, our very freedom. And Jesus is saying, yep, you have me. And I will be with you. And you will be formed and forged in it. And my purposes will not be thwarted, but will actually advance in the midst of it. bottom line of this passage is really a calling to his disciples for us to live alert, alive, attentive, awake, prepared. All of the energy in the passage, Jesus is he's inviting us to, in, in a culture of just distraction and, and medicating and, and busyness and comfort, what Jesus is saying is, no, no, you got to wake up. We're primarily trying to escape reality. He's saying, no, no, no. There is a reality that's unfolding in front of us. We must step into that, be awake to it. In a world where we anesthetize ourselves with trinkets and technologies, he's saying, no. When we're trying to pour ultimate meaning into, into like broken cups that are, that are in no way, shape, or form able to sustain the magnitude of what those meanings are, 
Jesus says, be on your guard. Don't be led astray. Don't be anxious. And what he means by that is you got to know what's true. You must know what is true. You've got to become solid all the way at the core of your faith through practice. You need a fluency in the scripture and a familiarity with the voice of the Father so that you don't get blown about, so that when tribulations and struggles come and uncertainties come in your life as they presently are, that you will know my voice and you will recognize what is true. We must be equipped people, trained, buoyed, strengthened, robust, because those are the people that Jesus says will endure to the end. And as you endure to the end, he says you are saved. Not like saved as in like those who really put on a good show and do their best are saved. And it's like, okay, well, you did good. You earned your, no. No, he's saying that that because you're saved, because you've been redeemed by Christ and the character of Christ has been formed in you, that as you walk through and endure in this, it is a manifestation of salvation. It is well with you, even if you lose your life. You discover that a life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but a reliance on the promises of God to bear witness to the gospel in the midst of adversity and to receive the supreme comfort that comes only from him. Jesus is saying, don't worry about the road. Don't worry about a road map. Don't worry about, worry about becoming a robust and strong hiker, someone who can take the path I know what's coming, and I'll give you exactly what you need every step of the way. Be strong, be strengthened, be deepened in me. The way this passage ends is this cataclysm, right? It's everything seems to be falling apart. Stars, they should make, should make us run in terror. But ironically, it's primarily there that we find, find the best and truest news. Verse 26 and 27. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. See, in, in the Old Testament, God's glory, his, his presence would appear in a cloud, right? When, they, when, they first, when the presence of God was going before the children of Israel in the desert, he was a cloud by day and a fire by night, and they knew he was with them. And then when they prepared the tabernacle that God had directed and instructed them to build, it says that a cloud came and filled the Holy of Holies, and and Moses couldn't even go in there. And when Solomon built the temple, the the cloud came and covered and filled the entire temple. For Moses on the mountain, the the cloud, we just read it, the cloud covered the entire mountain, and no one could touch the mountain. No one could even get near it. The glory of the Lord manifested in a cloud. It says that when the glory of the Lord left the temple, it left, the cloud left. And here something different emerges. The glory of the Lord doesn't appear in a cloud. No, the glory of the Lord appears in a person in in the clouds, on the clouds. That that at the return of Jesus, here's the the amazing thing. This cataclysm stuff shouldn't make us afraid. 
the, the destruction, the falling of stars, the, is this the undoing of the world? Because it pales in comparison to the beauty and the glory of the return of Jesus. So if you imagine the whole world, the heavens being shaken and going like, yes, this is good news because the beauty and the glory of the Lord in the person of Jesus Christ are coming back now. And that is good news for all who belong to him. He talks about he's going to gather the elect. Like, you know what kind of God we have? He's the kind who goes to, to the four winds and gathers his people in the history of the beginning of the world, God has had a people and he's been gathering them to himself and they've gone through persecutions and struggles and that's true today in the small ways that we experience them and the grand ways that we experience them and the great ways in which they're experienced around the world. But there is a day when everything, the most foundational things to the world are going to be shaken and it's good news and we have nothing to fear because he is coming back for you and for me if you belong to him. And that's the thing that keeps us grounded. That's the one we must know. That's the voice we need to recognize. That's the one who goes with us when we're taking a small step of risk or a huge leap of risk. He says, you got nothing to fear. I am the one who is coming back for you, and I travel on the clouds with the glory of the Lord as my train. The glory of the Lord is manifested in a person. And that's exactly what we celebrate every week. That he, not only did he come, in a person, and the glory of the Lord was manifested in the redemption that he purchased for us, but on top of that, he's coming back. And this meal is a remembrance and a reminder until the Lord returns. Loved ones, he's coming back for you. He's coming back for me. And the way in which we have peace and comfort in that is that there was a darkening. The skies get dark. There was a darkening when Jesus was on the cross, and it looked like evil and darkness had won. Actually, when Jesus dies on the cross, it's the moment where darkness and evil are defeated forever. Jesus has invaded darkness with light, and it's what he will do once again. It's what he's done in saving you. It's what we do here as we celebrate the reality of what is truest about you and me. I want to read to you What will be true after the Lord has come? And so I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes read from Revelation 21, verse 1 to 7. This is what we anticipate. Then I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with, their, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, Christ himself said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these things are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God 
and he will be my son. Let's pray. Father, that is, that is a, a picture of hope. In the midst of all the things that aren't, all the things that fall apart, all the things that we suffer, all the things that we experience, all the things that people around the world are suffering, as First Peter says, that in the same way your brothers and sisters are suffering around the world, that that's the image that you are coming to make all things new once and for all. And so, Lord, with anticipation, with our eyes fixed on you, we want to live today prepared, awake, alive, on our guard, with our eyes fixed on what is true about you and our souls and our hearts girded up with the magnitude of who you are and what you've done for us. And so in this meal, Lord, we want to remember that. We want to we take you in. We want to become familiar with who you are in more and more ways, both in prayer and through your word. And so, Lord, allow this to be something that saturates our soul with the depth and the beauty and the power of a Christ who has come for us and now is coming back again. And so we join the church in saying, even now, come, Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you belong to him, if Christ is your Savior, if, if he's your only hope, if he's the one you're waiting for, then this meal is for you. It's an experience.